Well, it looks like we're at time, so we can go ahead and get started. We're a little sparse tonight. We've, I know we've got a bunch of vacations, and a group of our guys are at Higher Things, which is a, a youth uh, event, a youth gathering in Texas. So I think that's the, the rationale for why we're a little lighter tonight. Thank you guys for joining us online. We're going to pick back up in Luke chapter 20 and look at what is the uh, last section of Luke that we're going to see in regard to our parables. The parable itself falls within a larger teaching of Jesus and one that is often confusing. It has a particularly perplexing line in it. So I thought maybe we'd look at that whole thing tonight and then see if we have time to jump over to Mark's gospel. We'll wrap up there and then we'll go over to Matthew who really has the fullest section of parables when it comes to the last times or the final judgment. So that's kind of the plan, and we're just whittling away at it. Let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that apart from your Son we can do nothing, and in Him we can bear much fruit. Therefore we pray you would enlighten us by your Holy Spirit, unite us with Christ, that we might rightly understand His Word, perceive it in the world in which we live, be set free from all false belief, lies, and delusions, and ever follow you in faithfulness through this brief life into eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, picking up in Luke 20, we again are in Holy Week. Last week we looked at the parable of the wicked tenants, which is 20, let's see, Oh yeah, no, we looked at the parable of the wicked tenants and then 2017, that's the second parable, if you will, that's sort of addended on to the wicked tenants and that's the stone that the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone. And as we go forward, it looks like I misspoke, we're going to go into Luke 21, which is then the home of the final parable that Jesus speaks in Luke's gospel. And that is going to appear at verse 29 with what is under the heading, the lesson of the fig tree. So a very brief parable and an an extremely easy one to understand in and of itself. What I thought we would do is pick up at 21 and do a relatively quick read until we get into the difficult section because what you'll see is this final parable, the parable of the fig tree, is right in the context of a larger treatise on the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem and that event as microcosm for the destruction, the judgment of the world. Make sense? Okay, so the occasion is the temple in Holy Week at chapter 21, verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So there, of course, is a proportional giving here that Jesus sees more to the point is this sort of reversal theme and motif where if you were just viewing it with your eyes, you would say, well, the rich are clearly giving more and this woman's just put in two small coins. What good is that? But as the Lord sees it, he sees the least doing the greatest and the greatest doing the least. So that ties in with the dynamic we saw last week in chapter 20. Now, and my favorite shorthand take on this, too, is that, and yes, this isn't spelled out in the text, it is a take, but there's something in this woman giving everything she had with no thought of herself that is a reflection of what Christ is going to do by the end of that very week. He's going to give all that he has for us, for the life of the world. There's this kind of complete sacrifice and faithfulness of Christ that, uh, even if only in a small way, even if only in this one occasion, is reflected in the act of this beautiful widow, which of course we don't know her name, but I, I assume the, lo- the line is very long to visit with her in heaven. An incredible lady and incredible faith, and of course her little act that she probably 
probably thought she was only doing her duty. <laughs> and here she is, wherever the Lord's gospel is preached, that, that deed is remembered. Okay, so they're looking at the temple. Now, in another episode of The Disciples, and others don't get it, Look at what happens right after. Verse 5, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. So again, they're seeing it as this great, glorious thing. This is not only the second temple of Solomon, but it's the second temple of Solomon being restored by Herod, who of course is a wicked man, and basically everything he does is hypocritical. Uh, he's a completely faithless man who's corrupt in every way. But he's adorning the temple by gum, so everyone has to praise him as a pious and honorable man. Jesus is rather nonplussed. Again, they're kind of seeing with their eyes and seeing the wrong way. Look at all the glorious stones and offerings. And Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, what are the days that will come? We know exactly that it was AD 70 when the Romans came and destroyed the temple and sacked uh, Jerusalem. So these days did come, and in short order. Verse 7, And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And that, that idea of sort of sign and when have everything to do with our parable that we're wending our way toward. What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Verse 8, And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Okay, so Jesus very clearly here talking about the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem. And, of course, there were those who had come before Christ claiming to be the Christ, and there were those that came after Christ claiming to be the Christ. In fact, one of the high priests even cites this and says, names a couple of them and says, their movements turned out to be nothing. So will this movement turn out to be nothing? Unless, of course, it's actually by the hand of God. <laughs> and here we are 2,000 years later. So, there's this, um, the first warning that Christ gives is this warning of false Christ claiming that I am he and the last times have come, the time is at hand. And Jesus just warns his disciples to not go after them. Now the implication, he doesn't, he's not there yet, is that when Jesus does return, it's not going to be in such a way that it has to be announced to you. He's going to come in glory, on the clouds, etc. And the whole world's going to see and the whole world's going to know. So when somebody says, hey, I'm the, I'm the second coming of Christ, <laughs> right off the bat you can know it's bogus. The next thing he mentions are wars and tumults, but here the wars and tumults aren't generalized. They're specific to what's going to be happening um, in that specific area and part of the world, that specific time. And it's ultimately the wars and tumults that are going to bring about the... I'm using that language loosely. I think it's intended to be used loosely. It's going to bring about um, the destruction of Jerusalem. So the uprising and rebellion being crushed. And he says to them plainly, do not be terrified, which, you know, is, as much as we were shaken by the Twin Towers falling, let's say, this is just exponentially greater. That to, to be a Jew in Jerusalem and lose the temple, see it brought to nothing, that's just cataclysmic. I mean, only one other time in the history of the world has that happened. And it was devastating. Uh, Babylon and the return out of exile is likened really only to Exodus. If it's second to the Exodus, it's second only to the Exodus. In fact, the prophets, the Lord himself, indicates as much when he talks about the exile and the return of the people, setting them free from Babylon. It's directly parallel and on par with his setting the people free from Egypt. 
So to have that occur again is necessarily a shaking thing, a terrifying thing, and thus you can see why he comforts his disciples and just tells them directly, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. That is to say, when you see the temple being destroyed, it's going to feel like the end of the world, but it's not the end of the world. (laughs) Okay, so far so good? Pretty clear? Yeah? All right. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And I I don't know where to interject this, so I'm just going to do it here. But this is exactly the kind of thing that Josephus, who's a later Jew writing and um, not a Christian himself, wait, is that right or is that Philo? Maybe I'm confusing the two. Josephus, not a Christian, just a Jewish historian. Yeah, okay. So that's what I thought. So Josephus actually mentions a bunch of these things when he recounts the destruction. He he mentions these odd heavenly signs that were taking place and these odd earthquakes and odd reports of of sort of events around the world that all of creation was in tumult and shaking when this occurred. So I just bring that to your mind because it's an extra-biblical source corroborating that this is in fact how it went down. Of course, at this point in the history, Jesus is foretelling these things. Eighty seventy is when it was all brought down. Yeah, so you're talking some forty years later. That's the uh, that's the exterminator. Yeah, I don't. Uh, hi. Yeah, absolutely. Right in here and right in there. You bet. Okay, so that's where we are so far. Then, and this becomes clear chronologically in verse twelve. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. This gets back to the like not being terrified, not being worried, not being overwrought about this. Because the Lord is going to give you, one of kind of my slogans, the Lord is going to give you what you need when you need it. Don't worry about this future that you're clearly not equipped for now. He will equip you when that future arrives. So, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Isn't that glorious? So I will give you the very words, and I will give you wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Of course, all of this happens to the disciples. All of this happens to the apostles and even the broader group of disciples. You will be hated by all for my name's sake but not a hair of your head will perish. Now, look at that. This is so typical Jesus. It's just delightful. Some of you they will put to death. Not a hair of your head will perish. (laughs) We're working with a different definition of death, right? A, A different way of looking at the world. They can take your body and they can torture it and they can put it to death, and even still not a hair of your head will perish. It's glorious. I mean, not only because as you die, remember, remember Stephen, the first martyr, as he's being stoned to death, he suddenly sees heaven open before him. Because to die isn't to die. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then if you want to get down to the nitty-gritty of a hair on your head, we're all going to be raised from the dead. Them too. Stephen as well. So that those hairs on his head, even though they perished, haven't perished and won't perish. So a glorious, glorious promise. That's kind of the beauty of God numbering the hairs on our head as well. It's not just, you know, <coughs> a meditation on his infinitude or his omniscience, but he's, got a, he's an, a bit of an accountant here. Uh, he needs to keep them numbered because when he raises you from the dead... Not a hair will perish. Not a hair will be missing. 
Hopefully some will be added in my case. I want some back. <laughs> it's kind of a sad reality. The, the grave starts, I mean, it's, it's morbid, but it's true. The grave starts consuming us before we're fully in it. <laughs> Some, in extreme cases, we even start giving up parts of our body ahead of time, you know. Got to amputate that, got to take that, got to remove that. So, the Lord keeps track of all of that so he can resurrect us exactly as we should be. All right, well, typical Jesus move. Would that I could preach like this. Some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. And then here's the key. I, I just, it is everywhere in the Bible. I only became aware of this, everywhere in the New Testament. I only became aware of this just a few years ago, but it's become one of my favorite words, endurance. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Okay. I mean, we are saved by grace through faith, but what is the experience of that faith when it's assaulted by the devil, the world, our sinful nature? It's just straight up endurance. <laughs> It's such a great image. Remember, um, remember Jacob in the wrestling match? He just won't let go. That's the thing. He just won't let go. Uh, doesn't matter if he's getting thrashed around. Doesn't matter if he's, you know, puts out his hip. Just won't let go. Uh, and in fact, Israel means to wrestle with God, to cling and grasp hold of God. And in that sense, we're all true Israel. We've been grafted in. And the exercise of faith or the endurance, the experience of faith through time is, is just one of endurance. And that's what I mean where, you know, again, I, I think I said this last week. I'm not trying to make some antinomian point of just, just believe in Christ and do as you will. I mean, far be it for me to say that. Uh, but the, the real point is, win, lose, or draw, victorious or not, cling to Christ, and the ultimate victory is going to be yours. That's the endurance. And we shouldn't be afraid of that victorious language because that's uh, punctuated throughout the seven epistles that Jesus gives to the churches in Revelation that we would nikao, overcome, the root of which is Nike, you know, just do it, be victorious. Um, But it's victorious in overcoming, it's victorious in enduring. So, you know, the Christian, the Christian life has its wins and its losses and its ups and its downs, its uh, triumphs and its tragedies. But at the end, all that matters is that word endure. Endure. So, sorry to sermonize there for a moment, but by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Okay, now, obviously it's clear from the context that he's saying, so you have a time marker in 12, But before all this, that is before the signs and the terrors and the temple being cast down, you're all going to be persecuted and some are even going to give your lives. Endure. And then in 20 we have our next time marker, or at least major time marker. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So we know that all the things he's mentioned beforehand come before Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Um, An unsung point, too. This is Jesus' major future prophecy that's been fulfilled. So in terms of a short term, like, is Jesus a true prophet or not? Well, he prophesied the destruction of the temple, which is an unthinkable prophecy. and And it came to pass. And he prophesied that it would happen in that generation, and that's what happened. I mean, it's yet one more proof, and especially from like a Hebrew mindset, from a biblically literate mindset, it's a definitive proof. Okay. 21, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for the, these are the days of vengeance. What vengeance? Bingo. That's the one. That's the one. Now, J- Jerusalem, you know, slaughters the prophets and persecutes those whom God sends. But the 
The crowning achievement is putting to death the very Son of God, and for that, vengeance is going to fall upon Jerusalem. So those are the days of vengeance. These are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant for those, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Obviously, these are the weak and the vulnerable. And I don't think this is like rhetorical or harsh. He may well, I mean, his tone, who knows, but it may well have been legitimately mournful. Like, this is what's going to happen, and I'm not happy about it, I'm not excited about it, and I have pity and compassion for the women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And that's true. You have a kind of diaspora that occurs, kind of spreading out. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. They're not fulfilled yet. (laughs) Continues. Now, I think that this is very much a key interpretive point because this is how, when Jesus treats of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, this is how it ends. And we want to especially keep this phrase in mind, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay? Because that's going to help us read the very difficult verse that's about to come up. Now, in 25... Question. Yes, sir. Um, I don't have a lot of... Uh, um, Jewish history in my public school teaching. Um, what caused the Romans to tear down the temple? Um, I mean, there was nothing that stopped them from doing it right this day or whatever. Yeah, that's a great question. I forget the exact uprising. Um, Josephus talks about it. Do you recall, Victor, being closer to it? I think Maccabees was earlier. Yeah, he was, he was earlier because that's why they celebrate Hanukkah and even Jesus is celebrating that in the Gospels. Um, they're also rebellion anyway. Yeah, there are these continuous uprisings of the people. Um, it's even hinted at with, uh, so the, the language of leste can mean thief, but it can also mean insurrectionist. So, um, well, there's a couple hints at this. So remember in John's Gospel, and I almost, I almost hate this because it, uh, the English, I think, really just underdoes it. In the Good Friday liturgy, where we're reading through the Passion account in the Gospel of John, one of the readings ends with, now Barabbas was a robber. It's a lace day. It's an insurrectionist. It's a rebel. It's one who is, and why is he a murderer? He's a violent rebel. So there's also um, thought, and I don't know if it's speculative or if it's grounded, but that Iscariot, that that name means um, has to do with zealotry and has to do with violence. So there, um, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about, and clearly this is anachronistic, but sort of an, an ancient parallel to the jihadis, there was one or two of those amongst Jesus' disciples. <laughs> I mean, these are men who are willing to take up the sword. You even kind of see this with Peter. I mean, there's a sense in which, hey, enough's enough. So there are these um, rebellions and uprisings that are sort of perpetually. This is also why Pilate's walking on eggshells. He doesn't want the crowds to have a rebellion and for this little rebellion to incite a bigger insurrection. So this is a continual threat. And a, so, Gordon, that's the best I can do. I'm sorry I can't be more specific. Like, I can't name if there was a specific man, uh, which would be a great answer if I had that, a specific man who led this specific thing and then... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right, perfect. Oh, yeah, you're checking it out on, yeah, on the Google, right. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah, yeah, so they, yeah. I don't know if there's a final trigger that, you know, kind of enough's enough. Um, yeah. Okay, was that, um, well, that's the best we can do. 
was there another question or was that, um, was that it? All right, good. So then we'll just pick back up at 25. Now, it's a subtle shift, but it's obviously detectable, and it's detectable especially in the repetition. So if you go back to um, 10, and I won't belabor the point, but if you go back to 10, you have this idea of the peoples against the peoples. So nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And then you have earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. That's kind of like this uh, earthly stuff. And then you've got the heavenly stuff um, at the end of 11. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So you've kind of got the sphere of mankind, the sphere of the earth, the sphere of the heavens, all of them. And you have a repetition of the language of the signs and then kind of a repetition of these same themes starting at 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So we see some of those same themes woven together. We see the distress of the nations. We see the signs in the heavenly bodies. We see the sea, which obviously is on the earth, with its roaring and its waves. And this is Jesus' prediction of obviously a different event because none of these things are mentioned previously. So obviously he's transitioning here to, and again, it'll just become increasingly obvious, to his second coming and the end of the earth. So we can look at the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple as a microcosm for the macrocosm of the final judgment. And I actually think that this is an extremely helpful way that Christians are meant to perceive uh, current events and history doesn't matter what century we're in. Every century has a microcosmic foretaste of the judgment, a microcosmic experience of that which is to come. So no, no generation is left without its own witness and its own microcosmic experience of the big one that we're all going to obviously be involved in. So if you look at our times, of course, we're just coming off the world wars. <laughs> if that isn't distress of the nations and wars and rumors of wars, I don't know what would be. Of course, if you were living um, at some point in time in the late 7th, 8th, or ninth centuries, and you were living around the Mediterranean, you'd think surely that's the end of the world too because the, uh, the Muslim hordes are coming over and raping and pillaging and converting everyone by the sword. If, um, if you've got any sensitivities toward Islam or uh, as a religion of peace or um, I- I- any sense in which uh, the Crusaders were wrong and the Muslims were right or they're somehow like equally bad, you need to read a book. Um, the, last guy, the name of the last guy is Ibrahim and the book's called The Sword and the Scimitar. Uh, wonderfully uh, researched book. But in, in about 80 pages, and they're quick, it's a quick, easy read, um, but in 80 pages, which is only about the first third of the text, you'll already see exactly why Islam grew so fast. Because it, go, it goes like this. Um, you will become Muslim or you will die and we'll take all your stuff. And so you go, okay, well, I'd like to live today, so I'll become Muslim. Oh, and you mean I get to go out and take other people's stuff? Yeah, that's sort of the whole point of the religion. <laughs> to expand through violence and taking other people's stuff. Sounds great. And then if you... So think about... And here's the gospel of Islam. The gospel of Islam is if you fight, your sins are forgiven. If you die in battle, your sins are forgiven. So the gospel is one not of Christ's blood shed for us, but of your blood shed you're absolved. And not only are you absolved, but you get the 70 uh, spiritual virgins who are made just for you and for your pleasures. So it's a sensuous kind of religion too. And so you got all these guys riding into battle thinking, Allah's going to forgive my sins and I'm going to get a bunch of virgins to sleep with for eternity. That's kind of like if the devil could create a religion based on our passions, that's it. 
And of course, this just became like dominoes popular. Anyway, the whole point being, if you were living in the Mediterranean at that time in the Western world in Christianity, you would go, this is clearly the end. I mean, there's demons riding with these bloodthirsty men and they're raping and pillaging and destroying everything and burning churches. This is the end. Uh, similarly, if you lived with Luther at the time, um, they were dealing with the plague and uh, Luther, uh, a mighty fortress was written in the context of a plague outbreak and ministering in the midst of a plague, which by the way, they didn't put away the chalice. <laughs> they carried on with that. They even knew that it could pass through the chalice and they said, well, we're Christians, whether we live or whether we die. We're not going to, we're not going to concede. We're not going to, our lives are in God's hands anyway. Why, why, why am I going to fear contracting something from the chalice? I could just as easily die of a stroke. You know, so what's the big deal? That was their view. But yeah, if you're living in the times of the plagues, you're living in a time in which three quarters of the world's population is wiped out, you're going to think this is the end. So there are many such times throughout the scope of this past 2,000-year history and times before that that are microcosmic of the final one. And so I, I think that that's why you know, everybody's all wound up about it being the end times right now. I, maybe they're right. You never know. Maybe, okay? But maybe also it's just a microcosm of the big one. But even then, that doesn't really diminish it because insofar as it's a microcosm, it is the big one just made present in small form for us right now. You see, so it still is, you know, all people get their experience <laughs> of living in the end times. It's almost, like, uh, it's almost like the author of Hebrews was right when he said, now, in these last days... <laughs> And he said that 2,000 years ago. And your alternative is to say, well, he was a little bit off. Uh, Oh, he was wrong about that. Maybe not. Maybe he had it exactly right and profoundly right, which is my position, obviously. Okay, so... Yeah, that little sermon over then, just back to the text, you've got um, the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear. It's hard to know if that's poetic. If it's not, it's fun to dabble with the idea of what actually happens when the Lord returns. Um, there's, there's one scientific thing that <laughs> if a pole shifts, the magnetic poles on earth shift, uh, which they very easily could do when the Lord returns, this is a legitimate scenario in which you would get like 200 foot tidal waves and just massive devastation uh, of places uh, due to water. Who knows? Who knows? Um, we can speculate till the cows come home on that. A more poetic take on this, of course, a la something like Revelation and this kind of um, intertestamental worldview, is that the oceans are places of evil, of chaos, and of hidden dangers. And uh, you know, factoring into this would be something like... Um, well, in, the, uh, in some of the intertestamental cosmologies... Um, the abyss is under the seas. So the abyss being like a sub-realm of uh, Tartarus or the realm of the dead. The abyss sort of being like the prison for the spirits there. And in some of the cosmologies, they viewed that as in the ocean, in the depths of the sea. So you don't want to go there. You could end up getting swallowed up into the abyss where the real bad angels are. It's sort of like maximum security for the fallen angels where God said, yeah, you've caused enough damage. You're locked away and there for good. Whereas the rest of the realm of the dead or the realm of hell uh, seems to be permeable, that the devil can be there and then come up here and run around if he wants and that kind of thing. Okay. So the sea here and the waves and the roaring may be understood in a more theological sense than a physical sense. We'll have to wait and see. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. Um, For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And everybody, you know, most of the commentators are wont to say that that's, uh, you know, signs amongst the stars and the sun and the moon and all that. And I'm fine with that. But again, in... In the genre of wild speculation, uh, powers of the heavens can also be the thrones of the heavens and the angelic hierarchy uh, that, like St. Paul alludes to in Ephesians, for example, this sort of cosmic hierarchy. Oh, and it's in the book of Daniel, of course, that at some point in time, 
um, sort of integrates with even the nations of this world and with the different, um, why does this nation beat that nation and that kind of thing. It's all interconnected with the heavenly hierarchy. Now, if those powers are to be shaken, then we might see all kinds of weird things in the skies. Um, And here's the wild speculation bit. Uh, With all of the UFOs, Okay, there's all kinds of more earthly explanations for what that could be. I mean, if I was going to create a bunch of technology that I didn't want people to think was mine, I would just say, oh, it's UFOs. <laughs> so that may be all there is to it. Okay, uh, But we ought, not, uh, we not, ought not simply rule out the possibility that strange phenomenon in the heavens are something going on in the angelic-slash-demonic sphere. We don't know what it is. Maybe it's a shaking. Maybe it's a chaos. Maybe it's a falling. Maybe, we don't know what, anything about that realm. But we ought to keep an open mind toward that very thing. We ought to keep an open mind toward the fact that these may well turn out to be <coughs> signs of chaos, indescribable things, things outside of science that um, are there. Assuming our government is remotely telling us the truth, which is... Hard to believe, isn't it? All right, so wild speculations, and I think it's fine. I think it's entertaining. I think it's fun, as long as we don't get dogmatic and weird about it, cult-like about it. You've got people fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming on the world. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 27, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. Now, that's not telling us the weather pattern that will just happen to be the case that day. The cloud is the, the glory cloud, the cloud in which he was enveloped when he ascended. Now he's returning in that glorious uh, cloud, re- reflecting, obviously, his divinity. And he's coming now with power and great glory. So he's not coming in meekness and humility. He's coming in power and great glory. Now, is he coming back once or twice? Very clearly, once. There's no talk of two, two comings, and it doesn't make any sense anyway. He's going to come once secretly. Why did he leave that out? Wouldn't it be pretty important for him to say, but don't worry, I'm going to secretly come back a thousand years before, pull you guys all up out of here, I'm going to, or I'm going to come back and establish a little kingdom of peace. You know? He just doesn't ever say that. The, the creation is, is sort of like, well, I think Isaiah does it the best, to tell you the truth. The picture of Isaiah is that creation in the presence of Almighty God, creation itself is just like comes to pieces, just like, like disintegrating before his face. Like planets are just like you know, flying out of the place. Stars are doing bizarre things. The, the laws of physics as we know them are warped and uh, disintegrating and coming into disorder because... The Lord has finally, his patience, he's slow to anger, and finally his patience have come to an end, and just at the fierceness of his face, the whole cosmos and all the powers are shaken and falling apart. So that's Isaiah's vision. You know, the sky's just rolling up like a scroll to get out of the way. Just <laughs> glorious, just glorious. So yeah, when he comes, it's not like you're going to be like, I don't know if this is the last day or not. I should get on CNN and see what they say. (laughs) It's it's going to be heavenly shock and awe. All right? (coughs) So again, if we just (coughs) pay attention to Jesus, or just pay attention to Paul, just pay attention to what the Scriptures actually say, we're going to be freed from all the kind of end times nonsense and false teaching that we've been subjected to since the 19th century here in this country. he's coming back once, it's going to be definitive, it's with power and great glory. Now, all of this stuff, just like in verse 9, he says, look, when you hear of all this stuff, don't be terrified, because these things must take place, and the end isn't coming. Now, parallel in 28, he says, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, that, that like the opposite here would be like to slump into despair and terror. 
you know, to say to the hills, cover us, to just hide out in, in, in this f- sense of like fearful doom. It's the exact opposite is how we should respond. We should straighten up. This should invigorate us. This should fill us with joy. When we see these things happening, our heart should start beating faster and maybe even skip a beat. It's like, it's like the night before Christmas when you're a kid. What's to come is going to be the best. You can't wait. That's, that's the idea of straighten up. Raise your heads is, again, that same idea. Don't let your heads be downcast. Don't be fear. The whole world's going to be fearful. Don't be fearful. Raise your heads. Lift them up. Why? Because your redemption is drawing near. So while he's coming in great wrath and fury against those who are his enemies, for his people, he's coming for our redemption. This is it. This is our rescue from this hellhole, <laughs> from this hellscape of demonic influence and men following it and unspeakable tragedies and untold misery and the disordering of creation and things not being how they should. And it's the end of all of that. So your redemption is drawing near. The second coming of Christ is not a time of terror, for Christians, it's a time of great joy. And that also, by the way, is where we can shine evangel- evangelistically, because while everybody else is saying, you know, oh, isn't it, doesn't it suck to be alive right now? You'd be like, no, not really. <laughs> the worse it gets, the more hopeful I am. <laughs> the Lord is surely coming. Okay. So I think this is just such a wonderful take our Lord gives us, and so counterintuitive. When all this terrible stuff is happening, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. All right, now into the lesson of the fig tree. And he told them a parable. Amongst Jesus' parables, this may be the most straightforward. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So the transition from winter and everything dead, and as soon as the trees start springing leaves, you go, oh, summer's almost here. It's springtime. Okay. So also, when you see these things, the things he's just mentioned, creation and tumult and all the rest, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Of course, the kingdom of God is exactly what we want. Thy kingdom come. We pray all the darn time. (laughs) It's great news. It's fantastic news. Okay, so just as sure as you see the sign in nature that the summer's coming, you're going to see the signs in nature that Christ is coming. That's the point. Now, the fig tree, of course, is is sort of one of these theologically freighted uh, images. Uh, More... It would be more fit to do a deeper study on this if we were talking about the withering of the fig tree. Remember when there's this fig tree and it's not even the season to bear fruit and Jesus is like, why don't you have fruit and zaps the fig tree? And we all go, that's rather unfair, you know, did Jesus not have his latte? But the, the point rather there is that the fig tree is theologically freighted and represents God's people and represents their fruitlessness in season and out of season and you know, very, very much kind of that imagery of the tree where the owner is ready to get rid of it because it's fruitless. And the one, you know, who tends the trees says, hey, just give me one more chance to dig around its roots, put manure in. And, you know, then if it still doesn't bear fruit, you can take it. Well, that time has come when Jesus withers the fig tree. He's like, that's it. I've, I've done what I can do. Okay. Um, so that's, um, you know, that kind of idea is the fig tree is Israel. You can see in Hosea 9, just looking at my notes. Of course, you've got the figs all the way back in Eden, right? What do they try to cover themselves up with? Uh, you know, little fig leaf bikinis. And that doesn't work, obviously. <laughs> the, the stiff Edenic breeze reveals their nakedness. So God himself has to clothe them by slaying the animal, which I think is the first recorded death. And it's a death that clothes sinners, and it's done by God. So all of this prefiguring Christ and being clothed, our nakedness and shame being clothed in his righteousness. So all of that prefigured. But So fig trees are there. Fig trees are Israel and Hosea. Uh, fig trees are the flourishing of God's people in First Kings. Um, referred to in the, the promised land is said to be filled with fig trees. In the New Testament, you have Nathaniel under the fig tree. So that's what I mean by theologically freighted. Uh, imagery, but generally speaking, 
representative of Israel. Yes, sir. Like present day, right now? I don't know. You mean is it fig tree season right now in July? Well, no, no. Oh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, is this an agricultural question or a theological question? <laughs> Oh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I, I mean, I th- again, I, th- I think what Jesus is doing is just, if we're sticking here with this, if we're talking about the withering of the fig tree, it's just, it, it's emblematic of the judgment of God's people. The withering of the fig tree comes with, um, and that's a different account than this one. The withering of the fig tree is basically a precursor to the, to the judgment that befalls Jerusalem. God's people are fruitless. I, my pa- I'm slow to anger, but I'm there. My patience are worn out. It's time for the day of vengeance. It's time for the day of wrath. And, it, and it's a significant one. I mean, the temple hasn't been restored. The, the Hebrew people, you know, they're faithful to God, etc. There's no sense in which they uh, have, Israel, or have Jerusalem. Even Christianity, if you want to go that way, that in many respects, that's what the Crusades were about, was trying to retain and recapture uh, Jerusalem and the inability to do that. So I think those things are in view with that particular usage. Here in this particular one, it's just straightforward. It's, you see a dead tree, you see it bring forth leaves. You don't see the summer, but you know the summer's coming, or is at hand. And the same thing's going to be true when you see the world sort of falling apart and disintegrating. You're not going to see the Lord at that time, but you're going to know that he's at hand. That's the point. Israel... Oh, I see. I, I don't think so. I, I mean, I certainly wouldn't read it in a Zionistic way, like... Um, I, mean, I mean Israel in the larger sense, the new Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that that, I think that, that would be an acceptable um, sort of homiletic take or uh, um, devotional take, sermonic take even on it, that the fig tree has grown leaves with the advent of the church, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We are in the last days. The fig tree is... Uh, bringing its leaves, Christ is due any time. So the post-millennial people would probably pick on that one. We're on the road to... Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and if you're, if, you're dealing with a, if you're dealing with a false teaching, then, then you've got to say, well, demonstrate and prove that from here, and you won't be able to. So that's what I mean by it's kind of a sermonic or homiletical take. It's permissible as long as everything else is straight. But if used as some sort of proof for what is ultimately a false teaching, then, then all of a sudden we've got to become more stringent and say, now where exactly in the text does it say that? It doesn't. So, yeah. There's two things you're upsetting me with. One is Only two? Yeah. All right. That's pretty good. One is I like the, uh, the thing of going out and killing people and you get their stuff and then you get free of sin. <laughs> you sound like one of the crusaders. This is why, this is why um, Rome decided to start doing this. Started granting uh, satisfaction to crusaders because of that very appeal. I mean, you had some really, I, I think you had some guys with their hearts in, their, in the right place. And they were just saying, hey, we can beat these guys if you'll just say, we get, we get forgiveness too. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the, the thing on the earth, the tribulation and all that, you really are ruining a lot of good movies. I don't, I don't know about you people, but I like a good destructive movie. I like it when, you know, San Andreas and those kind of things, you know, mm-hmm. people are outside and the glass falls on. And, you know, the buildings crawl. Oh yeah, Stephen King's The Stand, yeah. all that, uh, yeah, all that post-apocalyptic stuff. Yeah. 
What's the? We don't have very many video game players, I can tell in this room. But there, the Fallout, that whole video game of post-apocalyptic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, it's great. Yeah, it's great. To, great to think about. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, and how many firearms have been purchased just in America on account of the zombie apocalypse? Yeah. This yeah. sort of fantasy of what's to come, you know? <laughs> well, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I mean, sorry to ruin that. Just Yeah, the Bible doesn't have a whole lot of room there. Although, you know, I, I will say this, and, and, and this, might, this might actually be worth bringing out in this context, because you, you'll see how feminized and pacifistic Christianity has gotten because we've got no thought in our mind. In fact, we think we kind of say, oh, that would be, that sounds unchristian. That sounds not like Jesus. But in Revelation, the return of the Lord is a return where he's riding a white horse with a sword and the blood of his enemies is up to the bridle of his sword. I mean, this is the angel of the Lord who slayed, I can't remember, over 100,000 some odd of the enemies of God. He's returned to do this globally, and the saints are arrayed in armor with him. Now, I mean, does this literally mean we're going to be riding around on white horses slaying people? I, I doubt it, but, you know, the imagery here is one of battle and warfare and violence and decisive victory. And so there is very much a sense in which we participate in that, and in which we're participating in that right now. I mean, that's why Paul says take up, you know, the full armor of God as well as the sword of the Spirit. We're engaged in a very real warfare, and there's very real battles to be won and lost, and, um, and we need to, I think, lean into that and lean into the reality of that. It's not just an analogy. It's not just a pleasant thought. There is especially invisible things that we're unaware of that our warfare may have great effect upon. You know, we're, we're sort of foot soldiers... And a foot soldier doesn't know the bigger picture, but if he doesn't play his part and stop, you know, stop his army from getting flanked, uh, he can't see the bigger picture. But if he doesn't do his job, that's what's going to happen, and who knows what the cost is going to be. So I think leaning into the reality of the warfare, leading into that, um, the reality of it mattering, and then not being afraid of conflict and not being afraid of spiritual violence or physical violence, I think are really good steps for us to take because uh, that's part of the biblical teaching. It's part of um, what we see even at the, at the coming of Christ. I mean, Christ comes as a, as a king and as a conquering king, and we visited his parables where when he returns he puts his enemies to death. That's just a part of what he's coming to do. So if we say, well, I don't know. That, my Jesus is like, kind of more like the Birkenstock, wearing a long white robe flowing, never hurt anybody kind of Jesus. Well, then our Jesus might not be the Bible's Jesus. That's kind of disconcerting. So I'd rather lean us toward the Bible's Jesus, which is sort of like unapologetic Masculine, violent, decisive, and uh, we ought not... I mean, in many, in many ways, the whole way in which we can be gentle and turn the other cheek and be willing to die is predicated on the fact that, oh, yeah, because in the end, we're going to have our way and win. I, which is a masculine thing. It, it's a sort of emasculated thing to be like, oh, no, let's just uh, die because we're losers and we're in a great big game of who can be the biggest loser and the, the victory is somehow spiritual and metaphorical that in losing so much we end up winning. I, I mean, all that's rubbish and nonsense and all, all it does to the male spirit is just pours a big bucket of cold water on it and makes us not want to do anything. It sounds completely lame because it is completely lame. Uh, the idea that you know we're engaged in a battle and that battle will be won decisively and even physically in the end, I think we should very much have in our minds. Okay, well that's a complete tangent, but that's the best I can do to reconcile you know the post-apocalyptic stuff. Is uh, there will be there will be violence in, of one kind or another, and it will be decisive, and we will partake in that.
test going to happen pretty soon? Or did he, it was just basically this, this is the way the world is and we need to be ready for it? I mean, I, I can think of Jesus saying, not even the Son of Man knows. So that, I mean, to be safe, like he as the Son of Man, he as the Messiah isn't going to tell us when it is. Um, and in some sense is obviously uh, ignorant of the exact time. I think that's safe to say. Uh, so no, but, I, but this sort of idea of like Jesus and St. Paul and everybody else thought it was happening in the first century and it didn't happen in the first century, so they were wrong. Uh, I don't think that that's, obviously that's not biblically tenable. And I don't even think it's true. Mm, no. Yeah, all those guys are. I mean, most of those guys are, I, I mean, I don't know, they're ro- roasting in hell right now. But these are the guys who presumed to all gather together and vote on what Jesus said. So they came up with a color-coded Bible of like, uh, green means the majority of us think that Jesus said this. Yellow means uh, some of us, fairly certain. And red means, no, he absolutely didn't say it. It was that. But who on earth would presume to be that arrogant and I mean, even on a human level of just ignoring 1900 years of church history and, and history in general, you finally, you smart, you, you know, you just brilliant German guys who know more than anyone, you cracked the code, you and you alone, you finally discovered it, you, you got the historical Jesus. I mean, the arrogance even on a human level is just so appalling. Uh, I, I've, as you can tell, I've got no time for those guys. Yeah. I mean, even, even the Pope knows those guys are... Have their heads up, something. Yeah. Luther said, even if that he thought the world was coming to an end because of all what you previously mentioned, hmm. but he said, even if the world is in tomorrow, I'm still going to plant this apple tree today. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I don't know whether that's apocryphal or not, but the whole idea is exactly right that if you knew the world was going to end tomorrow, what are you going to do? The answer isn't like, oh no, quick, let's get all our sinning in. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, okay, that idea, and you guys have probably heard me sermonize on this before too, but the, the whole idea of a bucket list is a little bit like that. It makes me really uncomfortable. It's kind of like we got to get all our good stuff in before what? You know, before God takes it away. <laughs> it's just such a profound misunderstanding of who God is and where we're going and what the nature of this earth is. You know, this idea of like, oh, I got to squeak it out before, you know, who knows? Or the idea of, like, I'll never get to do that again. <laughs> It's just wild the way we think. It's just completely crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, I, anyway, if you see those higher critical guys, you can just ignore them. And thankfully, I think we're all getting over it good and well, uh, the whole church. I mentioned that the, I mean, the Pope uh, recently passed one. Rotzinger was just scathing on these guys when it wasn't even cool to be ragging on these guys. I mean, he, he hated them and hated their influence. The scriptures don't belong to these quote-unquote academics that pretend to be objective when they're anything but. They're just Satan's emissaries. Uh, the, the scriptures belong to the church, and they belong to God's, they're God's word to God's people, right? Yeah. So, no, I think Jesus is right on. I don't think he's in error. I don't think any of the apostles or any of the scriptures are in error. I think our ways of thinking are in error. I think some ways of, of our interpretation are in error. But let's, uh, for the sake of time, I want to finish this section up, and it's right within reach before we close. So, just to get a run-up, because we're right at the difficult verse, but hopefully, as, as you've seen, um, it won't be that difficult. So, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So, also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Which at least in English, and yeah, even in Greek, sounds as though he's saying it's going to happen before this generation goes away. 
That's certainly true of the temple in 70 AD, so some people try to read that into it and you know, kind of come up with a creative theology there, and I don't think that's necessarily bad. I don't think it's necessarily wrong, but I just think that the answer is more simple than that. Again, if you turn back to uh, verse 24, you get a taste of this, <coughs> and especially this all-important word, until. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That is to say, the trampling of Jerusalem will come to an end. That end in Revelation is when the new Jerusalem descends. Okay? So that's the point, is that this thing that you see right now will come to an end. Okay? Now, what then to make of 32? Again, the word to zoom in on is the word until. Truly I say to you, this generation... What generation are we talking about? The wicked generation, those who reject him, those who rebel against him, everyone who he's been preaching against and who are about to put him to death. This generation of wicked, of the wicked, will not pass away until. That is to say, just as there will be an end to the trampling of Jerusalem, there will be an end of the wicked generation. Now, here, generation, we want to think of in terms of genos or type or category. The way we think of generations is your grandfather's generation, that's one genos or type, and then your father's genos or type, and then yours, genos or type, and so on and so forth. But there's another way to conceive of generation, of genos or type, and it's one that Luke uses in other places, and it's one that the scriptures use. That's instead of seeing it in this kind of horizontal Uh, one generation after another, to sort of flip it vertically, there is a generation, a genos of the wicked, and a generation and genos of the good. There are the sons of the devil and the sons of God. Remember that from 1 John? So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that the wicked are going to remain and be a burden unto you until all these things have taken place. That is, just as the time of the Gentiles will come to an end and Jerusalem will be restored, the time of the wicked generation will come to an end and the earth will be restored. That's what Jesus is saying here. And you don't, I mean, you don't have to take my word for it. The more you think about it, the more you, you'll see that it's the plausible explanation. And of course, Art Just, uh, prof at Concordia Fort Wayne, says exactly the same thing. I think he makes his argument a little bit differently than I do, but we're in the exact same place. So look then how this fits the rest of the context. Heaven and earth will pass away. See how he already has in mind the passing away of the wicked generation? Heaven and earth will likewise pass away, but what will not pass away? His words. And what will, by implication, likewise not pass away? Us. The genos or generation of God, the sons of God. Now, Jesus doesn't spell that out, but that's clearly implied, and that's where he ends this little section on a, on a gospel note, a hopeful note, a lift up your heads you know, note. Um, the wicked will not always be with you. The heavens and the earth that you see that are so tragic all around will come to an end and will be made new. And I know I'm a few minutes over, but one more point. That includes the heavens, because good cosmology, informed by the Scripture, shows us that there's been sin in heaven. And there's been spiritual war in heaven. There's been all kinds of disaster in heaven. Heaven itself has not been left untainted. Heaven has to be made new every bit as much as earth. So as blessed as as it will be to be in heaven and to rest from our labors and be with the Lord and paradise and everything else, even in heaven there's a sense that things are not yet right and not yet done. And you can see that very poignantly, even when you have the martyrs under the throne of God in Revelation of 6, not fully satisfied, but praying out, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, until you avenge us? So heaven is blissful and as wonderful as it is, and Scripture speaks about that in many places. I don't mean in any way to take that away. Um, Scripture also tells us that heaven itself has to be made new and included with the earth. So heaven and earth will pass away, the wicked will pass away. These things will come to an end, and that's good news, especially because the word that Jesus has spoken to us will endure forever, and that means that we who believe in it and endure in that word will ourselves live and endure forever.
All right, so what then? Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation. Because when times get bad, all you're going to want to do is dissipate. <laughs> Drink. 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 Exactly. Exactly. That's how I felt this morning after getting the kids off to their various camps when they decided last minute they didn't want to go. It's like, all right, is it too early to have a margarita? Yeah, it is. It's 8.30. So, yeah. <laughs> it's 5 o'clock somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I mean, I, I, again, I know we're over time, and I'm terribly sorry for that. I, run for the door if you need to. But, yeah, this is the final encouragement of the Lord in, in a section that I think most Christians are intimidated by and scared by and think the Lord might maybe even be wrong. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's dead on. He's dead right. He's dead clear. There's nothing wrong about it. And, in fact, this is just so gloriously comforting for us as Christians. And then he tells us, look, you know, the times are going to get so dark, it's going to be hard to keep your head held up. Hey, look at the signs and pick up your head. Uh, you know, you're going to be tempted to just say, oh, you know, to hell with it. It's a lost cause and just kind of live in dissipation and drunkenness and get consumed with the cares of this life. And then before you know it, when Christ does come, you're terrified. It's like, you know, then that day comes upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Again, so much for the secret coming of Jesus where only a few people... So much for the so-called rapture where just a few people get swept up. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things. So endure, escape, all these things that are going to take place. And escape doesn't mean necessarily with your life, but with your eternal life. That's the some of you are going to die, but not a hair on your head will be harmed. And then look at this last glorious line, and to stand before the Son of Man, which stand is honor. Uh, stand is an unspeakable thing. You know, I don't know if you meditate or think on, like, what would it be like to ostensibly be face-to-face with the Lord? How would you not be on your face? And how would you not be saying what Isaiah said? Woe is me, for I am a sinner, I am a man of unclean lips and unclean everything. Okay? But the glory here is that on account of the gospel of Christ... Maybe after you're done with that, he will take you by the hand and raise you up, and before the Lord you will stand. And that's, you will have nothing to be ashamed of in his presence any longer. That's just such a glorious image and such a glorious teaching of our Savior. All right, I am so sorry I took us over. I intend to be respectful of your time. Let's um, wrap up just by praying the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.